Today we're in the book of Jude, the letter, uh, the epistle of Jude. Now, here's something. Uh, we're going to do this whole chapter tonight, or this whole epistle, this whole letter. It's a lot to do. We're not going to exhaust it. There's definitely more to study here. But uh, I kind of like doing it with this small epistle because it gives you the feel for how you should be studying the Bible at home. And what I mean by that is when you pick up, when you receive an email or a letter from somebody, you don't generally read the first sentence, put it down, or respond, right? You, you read through the whole letter. You, you, what's this letter about? What's it, what, if it's a bill, you throw it away. Well, I, that's what I do. That's why I get in trouble. No, no but if it's, you get an email, you, you read through it. You want the whole context. What's going on? Why is this person writing this? And then the same is true with the epistles. If you start studying an epistle, I highly encourage you to read through it all at one, in one sitting. You're like, well, wait a minute. Romans has like 15 chapters in it. It might be 16. I think it's 16. Uh, Romans has all these chapters. Well, yeah, trust me, though. You'll be blessed because you'll get the whole line of argument. You'll see what the whole letter's about, and it'll really help you in understanding. Then you go back and you study it in pieces. Well, so we're going to do Jude tonight, one epistle. And uh, here we go. We're going we're gonna to read it. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved, in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated, designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain, to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with, with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds and fruitless trees and late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, 
wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And all and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Praise God, sermon's done. Right? We're good. Hey, Ben, could we get the lights? I think, I think we're on the worship thing. Um, Jude, who is Jude? Jude is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Notice that in this letter, as he's writing the letter, he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. And, and the word servant there is bondservant or doulos, slave would be another term for it. And it, it's somebody who's chosen to submit themselves as a slave, to put themselves under somebody else and to their lordship. That's who Jude is. Jude has, has uh, <clears throat> written this letter, and, and it's interesting because he addresses it to the called. The word called there is kleptos. And, and what it means is invited. Hey, you're invited. Anyone, th this message, you're invited through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are invited. You're called. Who will respond? To the beloved those in Christ Jesus, those who are loved by God, they've been called, they've been invited, they've responded, they're in, they're in the love of God, they're loved by God, and then those who are kept for Jesus Christ. The word kept there is, is the idea of guarding, keeping, protecting, um, not, not letting go. So that's talking about you, dear Christians. Those of you who have responded to Christ, you are called, you are loved, and you are kept by Jesus Christ. And that's an important idea. And I also want you to know, if you're in this room tonight and you're not in Jesus Christ, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, I want you to know the invitation is there. You too can be called, kept, and loved by God through the work of Jesus Christ. But Jude lets us know in this letter, in the very first part of it, he says, I intended to write to you about our common salvation. That was my goal. I wanted to talk to you about our common salvation, how good God is, what God has done for us, what Jesus Christ has done for us. But instead, 
I'm appealing to you. I'm urging you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's urging us to contend for the faith. You know, when I think about that word contend, there is a fight that I have in mind from the UFC. And if you're a fan of UFC, you'll probably agree with me that this is one of the best fights ever, ever fought in the UFC in mixed martial arts. And if you haven't seen it, you can get online. It's for free now because it's been since 2011. But the fight was between Dan Henderson and Mauricio Shogun Hua. And this fight was incredible. I have a picture here of the two fighters right before they started fighting. Light heavyweights, 205 pounds. They're here shaking hands. Both of them were champions in different arenas other than the UFC. They were champions in pride in different mixed martial arts. This wasn't even a title fight. It, 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 there was no championship on the line. These two just came together to do this fight, and it was a five-round fight because it was the main event for this uh, particular um, UFC. It was incredible. From the get-go, these guys just went to blows. They were laying it all out there on the line. The next picture here shows Dan Henderson throwing his punch, and you can just see the power. I mean, it hurts. These guys started out with white shorts. By the time the match was done, the fight was over, they both had pink shorts from all the blood that had shed and the cuts that had opened up as they fought. They had gone, they had transitioned from boxing to choking to trying to submit ankle locks, leg locks, whatever they could do. But each one would somehow get out of the other one's uh, locks and would, they'd stand back up and they'd go back to blowing, trading blows. Throughout the fight, each one at some point had almost knocked out the other one. You would see the other one stumbling, trying their best to stay awake and stay conscious because they definitely didn't want the ref to call the fight. In fact, there's one time when Hindo, Dan Henderson, almost completely ruined Shogun. And you can see the ref is just about to call a fight and Shogun's putting up his hand. No, 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 I'm still here, even though he's just taking the beating. At the end of the fight, here's the picture of these two contenders. And I don't know how well you can see it, but their faces are totally swollen. They, they were actually banned from fighting for the following six months. They actually didn't fight again until eight months or 10 months afterwards. But they were banned by the doctors because uh, Hua Shogun had a fractured skull. Dan had a broken thumb. And they were just totally messed up from this fight. They laid it all out there. They were contenders. That's what this idea of contending, this word, means. And, and by the way, in the Greek, there's no question about the people in Jesus' day would understand this word. They understood what it meant to contend. They understood how important the games were. And so here Jude is telling us, contend. Contend for the faith. Why contend? Well, I'll tell you why. Your kids are a great reason to contend for the faith. Your kids are a wonderful reason to contend, to lay it all on the line, to not fold, not, not make us, uh, uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I forgot the word, uh, compromises. To not make compromise. Your kids, your grandkids are great reasons. That would be probably my number one reason for contending for the faith is you have a faith to pass on to them. Not for the sake of religion. Not for the sake of just, well, this is a family tradition. But for the sake of salvation. Because it is in Christ alone that we find salvation. Contend. Be a contender. For the sake of the lost, contend for the faith. There are a lot of people that have yet to hear the gospel and more so every day. You know, we can say that, well, there's churches all over the place. 
The problem is every single generation needs to be reached. That's the thing about the Great Commission. It won't ever be finished until Christ comes back because every generation, every generation in America, every generation in Mexico, every generation in Canada, and so on throughout the whole world in every city needs to be reached. Contend for the faith. Don't, don't allow these deceptive pretenders to come in to the church. So Jude warns us about deceptive pretenders, these apostates. The word apostate means um, to go away from the truth. And uh, it's a term we use in Christianity. It's not really found much in the Bible. There's a Greek word that we translate as apostate. It's called apostasia. But it means that those who have gone away from the truth, and, and often is translated in your Bibles as false teacher, or um, one who is, has uh, just left the, the church or left the truth. And that's what an apostate is. And Jude warns us that these deceptive pretenders have crept in. They're among us. Now, don't start looking around. <laughs> you know, like, wait, they're among us? Are you? No? Okay. You know. I'm not saying that, but, but they've, they've crept into the fellowship. Now, I want you to understand something. Jude wrote his letter somewhere mid-60s A.D. It might have been a little bit later. But by the time Jude wrote his letter, we'd already had most of the epistles of the New Testament written. So Romans had been finished. Paul's great theological treaties on the faith, Done. That should have settled disputes, right? It was circulating, circulating around the church. That should have handled things. Paul had written Corinthians and Galatians where he's correcting Judaizers and those who would want to impose the law and the traditions rather than Christ. He's already been correcting these things. We have the, the epistles of Peter already written, which probably Jude is referring to when he talks about the apostles had written about this previously. And, and so Jude, these letters had already been written, they'd been circulating, but the problem is Jude still needs to write about contending the, for the faith. The church will always have to contend for the faith. It's not something we're ever done with. We're going to always have to take a stand. But how do we know we're taking the right stand? Right here, the Word of God. This is what we stand upon. This is our foundation. We do not deviate from it. We teach it faithfully. We hold to it. When we have questions, we look to it. When we wonder if, something, if a teaching is from God or not from God, we go here. That's what we do. This word of God we, we hold in high regard. It's a very high standard. We will not take a position that the word of God is good, but, you know, it's a, it's a good standard or model for life, but not really the living active word. No way. We're going to take it as the living active word. It's more than just a standard. It is everything we need for life, faith, godliness. The word of God is sufficient. 2 Timothy 3.16, if you're curious about that. You can just write that down. We, we look to the word of God. And, but yet these deceptive pretenders have crept in. Notice they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Do we see that today in the, in the church? Absolutely. We've seen it ever since the beginning of the church. Jude had to write about it. Later on, we'll see in Revelation, right in the very uh, first part of the century, the apostle John's still alive, and we see that Jesus is correcting the churches in Asia. Jesus himself is correcting them through the, the opening uh, chapters there in Revelation. 
We will always have to contend for the faith. It's just a part of being, a, uh, being in God's community, God's faith community. So these deceptive pretenders pervert the grace of God. They change it. Uh, they look to, to fulfill their own sensualities. Jude says also that, that these guys have been doing this for a long time. You can always see, all throughout history, don't be surprised when somebody, you know, we, we, we get really surprised and unsettled when somebody turns out to be a false teacher or maybe they've even been in our fellowship for a long time and you're like, whoa, wh- where'd that come from? I don't understand. Don't be surprised. This has always been going on. Jude gives us three examples of it. He says, uh, don't forget Jesus led the people out of Egypt. It's interesting, by the way, Jesus led the people out of Egypt. Just mark that one down in your your memory. Jesus led the people out of Egypt, and then after that, some were put to death. He, he judged some. Think about this for a minute. The Israelites saw God free them. They saw the plagues. They saw how God manifested himself among the pagan Egyptians. He saw that how God attacked their gods, showing that he alone was God. The the Israelites saw how the land of Goshen was always protected. The Israelites witnessed how the the angel had passed over, killing the firstborn, yet those with the blood of the lamb spread above the doorpost were saved. They'd witnessed all that. On top of that, they witnessed God destroy Pharaoh's army in in the Red Sea. When it had parted, God closed that sea on them. Then they witnessed God's provision, God bringing water. God giving food. And finally, at Mount Sinai, they made that covenant with God where they were given the law. Here, you're my people. Okay, yeah, we're your people. But then rebellion came. You would think that they'd be totally convinced by this point. But no, not so. There's always deceptive pretenders. Then Jude talks about the angels. What could be more convincing than, than being in front of the God who created everything? Being in heaven, like, oh, you're God. That's, you're awesome. <laughs> hey, you know, uh, Satan's got this plan to be worshipped too. You know, I'm thinking it might be a good idea to, to, to worship, be worshipped like Satan. You know, what? That's crazy. But the angels themselves were cast out of heaven. They were deceptive pr- pretenders among God's created angels. And then, of course, in Sodom and Gomorrah, a great illustration about those who turn away and how God rescues the godly, but yet still judges the ungodly. So Jude says, in a like manner, these people, relying on their dreams to follow the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Let me just say a word here about the dispute between Michael the archangel and Satan over the body of Moses. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Jude left that there for us to go, what? <laughs> Jude gives us this little fact, this nugget, and, and, and there is a, a, a pseudopigrapha work called the, the, the Book of Enoch. It's a kind of apocalyptic literature, uh, but it's not by Enoch, and there are some things in it that uh, scholars will try to say, oh, this is a quote from, the, from Enoch, and here's the thing. I know Jude is quoting truth, and Jude, Jude is writing to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not Enoch. Enoch is not part of the canon of Scripture. There's nothing there. Here's what I do know. Jude mentions this dispute, and we're left going, wait, why were they arguing over the body of Moses? What's going on there? And we can, we can kind of 
come up with some theories and, and think about it and speculate about it, but we don't dare teach anything about it doctrinally because the word doesn't teach anything. It just says, hey, this happened. And, and Jude isn't telling us so that we would know that it happened. He's telling us so that we would understand that even the Mi- Michael the archangel doesn't speak blasphemous things against the principalities of heaven, but rather says the Lord rebuke you, the Lord deal with you. And that's an important aspect here because nowhere in this book as Jude is talking about dealing with these deceptive pretenders is saying that you go judge them. It's always God judges them. That's not our place as the church. We don't do the judging. God does the judging. God will deal with these people, these false teachers, these apostates, these deceptive pretenders that's not our place. But Jude lets us know that they, they reject authority. This is a hallmark of someone who's deceptive, a false teacher. They reject authority. Who's authority? Well, they reject the authority of the word. They don't want to have it. It has no authority over me. <laughs> yeah, but here's what the word says. Yeah, but no, no not, not for me. That's for you. They're constantly rejecting the authority of the church. Now, what do I mean by the authority of the church? Well, certainly I'm not a fan of the shepherding movement, which was popular in the 70s. It's kind of coming back into play. I don't know why. It's a movement that says, like, anything you want to do, you got to go to the pastor. Frankly, I don't have enough time for you to ask me about stuff, nor do I think you want, you want to ask me. I'll just tell you, let's ask God. That's what I'll do. <laughs> but that shepherding movement is not a good movement at all. It's, it's a heretical movement. It is not from God. Stay away from those things. Putting yourself under the authority of a pastor or teacher, the elder board, that's being a part of a fellowship. That's recognizing that God has called some to be pastors, some to be teachers. Is it possible that pastors abuse their authority? Absolutely. We're sinful men. I look in the mirror and guess what I see? A sinner, just like you. I see a sinner saved by grace. It's absolutely possible that pastors can abuse their authority, but it doesn't change the fact that Some are called to be pastors. Some are called to be teachers. And God promises a harsher judgment for me than he does for you. That's a good deal, right? (laughs) No. No, it's not. (laughs) Don't say yes. (laughs) So (laughs) God's going to hold me to a higher standard than he'll hold you because he's given me authority. So, so it's one of those things when, when the church, when the pastors or the elders say, hey, you know what? Be warned. Don't go down this road. This is a sinful road. The right response is, all right, I better seek the Holy Spirit on this one. I better pray. I better seek the Lord. Because they're warning you for your good, not for mine. I'll tell you right now as a pastor, uh, and by the way, being the associate pastor here, I get all the the hard ones. Like generally, uh, Rod says, hey, I want you to call these people uh, about this. Or we got to deal with this. Go deal with it. It's like, okay. So I look up, hey, how's it going? Hey, just want to talk to you about this issue, and it never goes well. It never goes well. But I do so because I love those people, and I want them to be warned about certain behavior, that it's not fitting for those in the church. Certain things we're not going to, we need to warn you about because it's for your own good. So they reject authority. They walk in error. What does that mean that they walk in error? They defile their bodies. They, They look to instinctual things. They look to the animals as examples. Hey, the animals do it. Therefore, it's okay for us to do it. No, you're not an animal. There's something very different about you than the animal. It's called creating the image of God. You are creating the image of God. Now, animals are important. I have a dog. Lily's cool. She's like, hey, dog. That's good. 
But you, you are created in the image of God. You are more important. You are more valuable than the animal. You have the ability to be creative. You have the ability to have thoughts about your thoughts. You have the ability to make moral judgments. You have the ability to sin. My dog, Lily, although she reacts when I correct her, she's, she does, she's never done a sinful thing in her life. She was born into a sinful, fallen world. But my dog, Lily, is not going to be judged for sin. I am. Christ didn't die for my dog, Lily. Christ died for me. So I'm not to go looking to animals going, hey, man, animals just get their freak on. You know, it's totally okay for me to do it. No way. It doesn't work that way. Yet these are what they do. They walk in error. They, they uh, lead falsely. You know, the crazy thing about this is Jude warns us that these deceptive pretenders are in the church. It's not like they walk around with horns on their head and a pitchfork and they've got a weird tail and a goatee. They don't look bad. In fact, they look like everyone in here. They look like us, these deceptive pretenders. Jude says that, hey, they walk after the way of Cain. Cain knew God. Cain knew what would please God. Cain had a relationship with God, if you read in Genesis. But his sacrifice was not honored because he did not bring his first fruits. He brought his leftovers to God. Abel's sacrifice was honored. In fact, God even warns Cain, hey, Cain, sin is in your heart. You better watch out. What does Cain do? Murders his brother. Cain looked like God's people. Then Balaam, Balaam, he's a prophet. Of, he's a prophet. He's a real prophet. He's, he's not just like a, a, a false prophet. He actually really prophesied. He was a very gifted prophet. And I know that's hard for us to believe because we kind of think like, well, if you're on God's side, then you're gifted. But if you're not on God's side, you shouldn't be gifted. But here Balaam, he's totally gifted. And he keeps going out to, in the book of Numbers to prophesy against Israel. He's like, okay, you got some money to go do it. And he's like, okay, I'm going to prophesy again. And then he keeps speaking blessing upon Israel. He goes back and says, listen, king, I can't do it. It's not working. I, I keep trying to prophesy against them, but God is with them. we got to come up with a different plan. What, are you crazy? That doesn't even make sense. Sin never makes sense. I'll tell you right now, if you try to rationalize sin, it's not going to work. So Balaam, in his error, he ends up convincing uh, <clears throat> them to send out their women so that they can entice the Israelites away and thereby bring God's cursing upon Israel. Terrible. This guy was so gifted. That's how, how these deceptive pretenders are. They can be gifted. They can be among us. Watch out. Know the word of God. Listen to how dangerous these guys are. Paul says, they are hidden reefs at your love feast. He gives us these examples from nature. Hidden reefs. They're meant there to shipwreck your faith. What's a love feast? If you were born in the 60s or you lived in the 60s, it's not what you're thinking. It's not what a love feast is. Love feast was a time when the church would get together and they'd share in the Lord's table in communion and fellowship, and it would be a meal. It would be like a whole meal. I know that's a foreign idea to us because we, we don't ever make a meal out of communion. It's a totally foreign idea. But in the first century church, that's what they did. Today we call it a potluck. It was a potluck. It was a, a great fellowship with food and remembrance of what the Lord had done and remembrance for his coming. 
expectation of his coming. That's what the love feast was. But here they are hidden reefs at the love feast. They're going to shipwreck the faith. They, they feast with you without fear. They're shepherds feeding only themselves. Ezekiel 34, God warns against that. He says, woe to the shepherds of Israel because they, they, they're just fleecing the flock, not feeding the flock. God has a lot to say about shepherds who only feed themselves. They're waterless clouds. Can you think of any greater thing to kill hope, to bring hopelessness than a waterless cloud? I mean, we've been in this drought for a few years now. And during the wintertime, of course, now we're getting rains, which is, I, I don't understand. I'm thankful for it, but I don't understand it. I've, I've, we've flipped our seasons. But in the wintertime, these clouds would come over, and you're like, okay, we're getting some rain. This is great. And then no rain would happen. You're like, oh, I guess we're not getting rain. This year, we were constantly expecting El Nino. We're like, come on, El Nino. And El Nino never came. I don't know who else came. But... Not El Nino. This year we're supposed to expect El Nino. And we're all going to be like, okay, come on, El Nino. And obviously we just need to keep seeking the Lord about this. But a waterless cloud is so hopeless. It takes away hope. A water-filled cloud brings hope because you know that the crops grow and so on. Of course, we're, we're a little removed from a farming community, but it makes a huge difference. They're fruitless trees. Just recently we finished the Gospel of Mark. Jesus had a lot to say to that fig tree, didn't he? He cursed it, and it was cursed because it bore no fruit. And obviously that was that symbol of Israel. But Jesus said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit in the book of John. We're to be bearing fruit as Christians, not fruitless. They're wild waves of the sea. Okay, I have a couple fears. I know, it's hard to believe, right? Me having fear, I'm just kidding. I have a couple fears. The first one is giant squid. They freak me out. Have you seen programs on giant squids? They have beaks. Why does a squid have a beak? It's a problem. So that's one fear. I've never encountered one though. My second fear is giant waves, freak waves. Have you heard about these waves? They come out of nowhere. They're rogue waves. And, and, and they, they just capsize ships. No one knows where they come from or where, they, where they're going. They just come up out of nowhere. And scientists have tried to study these things because... Giant ship, shipping ships are built to withstand a 50-foot wave. That's the kind of the standard. They're supposed to be able to propel themselves up over a 50-foot wave. And I, I've been out in big waves before. Well, 10 to 12-foot wave is a big wave for me. I know, you're laughing. Laugh it up. No, uh, we were out surfing one day, uh, Pastor Rod, myself, and Edwin, and we were down in San Clemente, and, and it was a big day. In fact, if you ask Edwin about it, he'll tell you he thought he was going to die that day. It was, it was a big day. San Clemente has a steep wave, 10 to 12 foot, and it was frequent. Just getting out past the break was, it just took forever. Pastor Rod didn't end up staying out. He ended up, I don't even know if he actually made it out past the break. I'm not even sure. I can't remember. But um, I caught a couple waves. Board snapped in two. So I, my time was done. I came in. Uh, Edwin came crawling in on the beach. Oh, I'm done. I'm not going out anymore. It was a scary day. So I can only imagine a 50-foot wave. And, you know, of course, you have these big wave surfers that surf bigger waves. But a 50-foot wave is a huge wave. Well, they've recorded waves as big as 85 feet just capsizing ships. They don't know where these rogue waves have come from. Wandering waves just ready to capsize your faith. They... Um, 
they thought for a time that these waves were the product of where two currents would meet and you'd have the warm and cold water and maybe that would cause these waves. And it did, does cause some waves, but there were still waves being produced, these giant waves out of nowhere that had, it didn't follow any of the data. This is incredible. These waves are scary. And uh, Jude compares them to these wild waves of the sea, foaming, uh, uh, the foam of their own shame. And then wandering stars. You know, we don't use the stars any, anymore today for navigation. We use Google. One time, we, one time we were in Arizona and I put in Cracker Barrel because whenever we go out of state, we love to go to Cracker Barrel. They have a good, great breakfast. That's what we love to go for. And uh, we put in, I put it in Cracker Barrel and we're driving and I'm so excited. Pancakes are coming. The hash brown casserole is coming. It's really good if you've never been there. And we pull up and it's Crate and Barrel. And I was like, What? I don't want home goods and towels and dishes. I want pancakes. You know, that's what I wanted. And, uh, and I was so bummed by that. And, uh, <laughs> the, and I was so disappointed in Google. And I'll tell you right now, anytime Google gives you wrong directions, you're just like, oh, I hate you, Google. And, uh, but but in, in Jude's day, in the first century, the stars were how you navigated. That was how you did it. And a wandering star you can't navigate by. And today we know that these are planets and asteroids and meteors. Uh, but here's an example of, of what planets go through. It's called planetary retrogradation. And this is the Mars on its, what it looks like from Earth on its, on its rotation. Play it one more time. There we go. Go around. We're going to follow. Oh, nope. We're going back. Coming back around. And out. That's a wandering star. You can't navigate by it. It's impossible. These are what deceptive pretenders are like. Beware of them. They're dangerous. They'll shipwreck. They'll capsize. They're, they're, they're hopeless. And you cannot navigate. You'll get lost if you follow them. Jude wants us to be warned about them. But notice, as he says to us and, and how to respond, we fight. We fight on. That's what, that's what the Christians are supposed to do, to fight on, but not with the way the world does. We don't go to fisticuffs. We're not like the contenders I showed you from the UFC. That's not how we deal with it. Look at how Jude says to deal with it in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your holy faith. How do we build up ourselves in our holy faith? Well, we get to know Jesus more. We get to know God more. Right here. Here's, here's how we do it. You know, it's amazing. When we know the truth, it's very easy to spot falsehood. When we don't know the truth, we can't tell up from down. We don't know, we don't know which way to go. But if we build up our faith, if we know the Lord more, and by the way, Jesus said, if you want to know the Father, you know me. If you want to get to know God, the Father, you get to know Jesus. That's how you do it. So the more we build up ourselves in our faith, we're going to know more about the truth and we're going to be able to recognize these deceptive pretenders of the faith. He says, build yourselves up, keep your, uh, praying in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Romans 8, 26 or 27 says this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, 
But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Romans 8, 26 and 27. We have been given this gift of the Holy Spirit. Anyone who is in Christ, you've got it. Wait, I've been given it? Yep, you've been given it. The Bible says you're sealed with the Spirit. You've been given this gift of the Spirit to intercede, to speak with God. The Spirit helps you pray to God. It's, it's an awesome thing. How many of you, I wonder, and I want to encourage you to start doing this if you don't do it already. Lord, search me and know my heart. Show me in the unclean way. Show me your truths. And you know what? There's times when we don't even know what to pray. And we just, just wait. Lord, I don't know what to say. Just wait on the Spirit. Just You wait. You'll see what happens. God will teach you what to pray. Sometimes you groan. Guess what? God totally understands what you mean. He under- Even if you don't, the Holy Spirit intercedes for you. And uh, pray in the Spirit. I, I think this is important too when someone corrects us. You know, a lot of times we get corrected by people and it's not fun. In fact, sometimes people are jerks about it, right? Uh, they're just like mean. But I think even in those times, it's important for us as Christians to go to the Lord and say, Lord, have I done something wrong? Lord, what needs to change in me? Maybe you've had an interaction with a family member or, or, um, and someone's accused you of something. Well, don't just write it off because the person's being a jerk. Go to the Lord. And say, Lord, because oftentimes there's some truth in those things. And God, God uses those things to get us to pray in the Spirit, waiting on the Spirit, and God changes us. He, he removes error from us and in our lives. Keep yourselves in the love of God. This is not a salvation issue. This is a blessing issue. Look at John 15, 9 through 10. It says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If you want to know the love of God, if you want to keep yourself in the love of God, be obedient to God. Obedient doesn't bring about your salvation because Christ was obedient. Obedience brings about the blessing of God on your life. Sometimes that's a real step of faith for us, I'll tell you right now, because sometimes when we hear about, well, I want to be obedient, but this is just an impossible situation. I can't be obedient in this situation. Well, Dear one, you're being challenged to step out in faith. You're being challenged at this point to, will you step out in faith and be obedient? And I'll tell you right now, you will be blessed when you do. There's tough decisions we always have to make in this world. But if we're obedient to Christ, we will be blessed. Keep yourselves in his love, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now look at this. This is really important. We're to show mercy, not judgment. Verses 22 and 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. The Bible doesn't say, hey, Christians, to avoid these deceptive pretenders, you beloved, go build a shack out in the woods, seal it up, don't let anybody in. Nope, doesn't say that. It doesn't say go start an inquisition, start torturing people and questioning them. All right, are you a deceptive pretender? You know, it doesn't say to do that. It doesn't say to start kicking people out of church. I mean, sometimes people have to go. There are sometimes wolves in the sheep pen. And we have to deal with those things, but we do so in a godly way. What, what it does say is that we're to have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Sheep get confused sometimes. Sheep just get confused. They start following the wrong shepherd. 
Sometimes it's another sheep. I read this story in USA Today. Um, it's from 2005. Istanbul, Turkey, 450 sheep jumped to their deaths in Turkey. First one sheep jumped to its death, then stunned, Turkish, uh, then stunned Turkish shepherds who had left the herd to graze while they had breakfast, watched as nearly 1,500 others followed, each leaping off the same cliff, Turkish media reported. In the end, 450 dead animals lay on top of one another in a billowy white pile. Those who jumped later were saved as the pile got higher and the fall more cushioned. It's hilarious but sad. I mean, it was, it was a terrible cost for the town. They lost $100,000, this, this small poor town, uh, because of all the sheep that were lost. But this one sheep's like, had a bad idea. It stepped off a cliff. And the other one's like, hey, we should, all right. And they, and they go. And then the next one, the next one, and the next one. 450 of them dead. All 1,500 went over, incredibly. Sometimes sheep get confused. Amazing that so often in the Gospels, Jesus refers to us as sheep, and he's the good shepherd. If we want to keep ourselves out of confusion, we've got to recognize that he's the shepherd, follow him. But recognize that, have mercy on those who doubt. Respond to them with mercy. That's how Jesus responds to you, isn't it? With mercy. You deserve a lot more than mercy, but God gives us mercy. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Snatch them. That, that sheep's going off the cliff. Get them. Pull them back. Recognize that sometimes people follow the deceptive pretender. Or they get confused and they start following the one causing division. The one who's... Uh, Malcontent, the one who, as Jude puts it, is, uh, oh, sorry, uh, a grumbler, a complainer, the one who stirs up disunity, the loudmouth boaster, the worldly one. Sometimes sheep start following that one. And, and we got to be merciful to those people. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Listen to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The Old Testament gives very clear instruction on how to deal with a skin disease. It says, you know, you put the person in, in quarantine for a while. After the skin disease is gone, you take the clothes and you burn them. Not the person. We don't burn the person. We don't throw the person in the fire. We throw the clothes into the fire. That's, we hate the, the garments that are infected, not the person infected. We're not throwing them into the fire. We got that, right? We don't throw the person in the fire. We have mercy on the person throwing the clothes into the fire. I'll tell you, showing mercy, <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I think about one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, and that's give a two-year-old prednisone, this steroid, this liquid steroid. My kids have asthma, and um, whenever they have an asthma attack or whatever, we'll take them to the doctor. The doctor gives us, you know, breathing treatments, all this sort of stuff, and then also like a three-day course or four-day course with this steroid. And Elise is probably the worst one out of all the kids to take this stuff. But this stuff is super bitter. And, and you're like, okay, I'll just get it in there. And so you squirt it in the mouth and they start gagging and then throw up all over you. And like, ah. Then, then, then my wife and I would like try to like hold her down and force the medicine in her mouth. Because the fact is we know the medicine's going to help her. But then she's like drowning because she doesn't want to swallow the medicine. It was awful to do this. But you know what? It was a real act of mercy even though she didn't want to undergo it, it's an act of mercy, church, when we do correct those sheep who are 
following bad ideas. It's an act of mercy. It's an act of grace to do that. And so we, we don't want to stay away from warning them, say, I just want to be merciful, so I'm just going to stay over here. No, if God puts something in front of you, you got to speak the truth. I hate speaking the truth about certain things. I, I, I mean, it's not, well, I don't hate speaking the truth. That sounds really bad. Um, but I don't want to confront sin ever. I don't like doing that. I'm just like, cool, <laughs> thumbs up, I like you. You know, I don't want to do that. But listen, if you're being confronted on sin, it's an act of God's mercy and grace in your life that he confronts you. So hating even the garment stained by the, fl- the flesh, you are the called, the loved, and the kept by Christ. Jesus, in, in Jude's closing here in his doxology, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. The word able is an awesome word in Greek. It's dunamai. And, of course, we get our word in English dynamite from it. But what it means is something that has intrinsic absolute power. That, that, and, and, intrinsic is just a word that means it has it within itself. It doesn't get it from anywhere else. So Jesus himself is, has that power within him to keep you. He is able. He is able to keep you from stumbling. He can do it. It's an awesome idea. I, I think, you know, when I look in the mirror, I go, oh, dear Dave. <laughs> I wish you were holier. I wish you, whatever the case is. When I, when I feel down about myself, I recognize that this promise from God, he is able to keep me from stumbling. He is able to present me blameless before the Father. He is able. In Christ alone, he is able John 17, Jesus uses this word when he says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer. He's praying for the church. And he says, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. The scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus keeps us. He's praying for us. He's petitioning on our behalf. He keeps us. He is able. He can present us with his joy. I um, yesterday had a, a guy come to my house. To, he was selling solar panels and I mistakenly didn't realize it was a salesman and opened the door. And, and then I mistakenly invited him in and was hanging out with him. And as we were talking, I said, well, listen, I, I don't have a lot of time. I'm working on a sermon. Here's my, can I get your card? And he's like, well, usually people only ask me for a card when they want me to leave. I'm like, oh, you're getting that, you know. That's good. But so I gave him my card and he said, oh, what, what faith are you from? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. Um, and he said, oh, well, why did you become a Christian? And by the way, this, this guy was an older gentleman. I think he was like in his 70s or something. I don't, I don't know. But he said, why did you become a Christian? I said, well, when I was in college, I started asking life's deep questions. Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? What's, who's right? I believe there's a God, but who is he? And I started checking it out. And then um, I started reading the Bible. And I was amazed by the truth of the scripture. And I was amazed by the power it had. I was amazed at John 14, 6 when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I was amazed by that. And um, I, was, uh, I, I told him that I was really challenged because if Jesus was the way, then that means there's no other way except through Jesus so I said, when I finally got to the end of the Gospel of John, and I realized that 
Jesus did the work for me. It wasn't about me being a good person because I'd always thought Christianity was about being a good person. And I was a fairly good person. But realizing that, nope, <laughs> I, I wasn't good enough, that Jesus had done the work for me. And I told him, it was at that point that I fell down on my floor and I started praying, Lord, save me. Thank you so much for dying for me on that cross. And I was amazed. And he was like, that's really interesting. You know, I studied philosophy and psychology. And, and um, you know, I didn't come to the same conclusion. And I, I challenged him because I was like, well, because you looked at man's philosophies, that's, that'll rob you of hope. Man's philosophies, all they do is steal hope from you. The more you study man's philosophy, the more you're like, oh, I don't even know what the person is. The more depressed you get, the more upset you get with life and all these things because it's grasping at blindly into the dark. It's just a blind groping in the dark when you read man's philosophies. But Jesus' philosophy is amazing. It answers all of life's questions. It, it, it has the purpose for life. It has the answer for life. It has the answer for your sin, and it removes it from you. Jesus can do that for you. Jesus is able to present you blameless. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your love. We thank you for this little letter to, that Jude writes to his church. And we thank you that you are able. You have that power, God, to keep us from stumbling. Lord, God, help us to be watchful, be aware of these deceptive pretenders. Lord, help us to show mercy like you've called us to do to those who doubt. And if anyone is in this room who has not yet experienced the love of Jesus Christ. They're hearing the call, but they have not yet responded. I want to invite you to do so right now. You just say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I thank you what you did for me on that cross. I'm ready to follow you. We give you praise, Lord Jesus. Amen.